Hey listeners, Phil here. I just wanted to let you know that this January, Stageworthy will be seven years old, and I can hardly believe it's been that long. If you wanted to celebrate with me, there is no better way to do that than to help spread the news about Stageworthy by leaving a rating and review. Especially if you listen on Apple Podcasts. I would be so grateful if you did that. But I'm even more grateful that you're listening. Thank you for seven years. I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Aaron Malkin and Alistair Knowles, or as some may know them, James and Jamesy, have performed across Canada, the US, and the UK. A James and Jamesy show combines physical comedy, clown, and dance to create unique theatrical experiences. They've been described as fringe legends and one of the most popular fringe duos ever. They joined me to talk about their 32-city tour of their Christmas offering, Oh Christmas Tea. Here's our conversation. Alistair and Aaron, welcome uh, to the show. Um, just to, to so that everybody can differentiate between voices, if you could just, uh, each of you, uh, say your name. We'll start with, we'll go Alistair and then Aaron. Just say your name so everybody can hear what your voice sounds like. But Alistair is muted, so we can't hear him say what his name sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I'm Alistair. I'm the muted one who speaks now in this style. Uh and I'm Aaron. I'm the tall one. Uh, I'm. This is how my voice sounds. Perfect. So, so, I mean, one of the things I like. I when you have people who are like your show, James and Jamesy, you, like you do uh, uh, these characters and things like that. Um, I always want to make. I always like to talk to the actor, not the character. And I've had a couple people come on because they're known for a character and they want to be in the character, and that's kind of boring to me. But if somebody <laughs> didn't know what a James and Jamesy show was, how would you describe it to them? Uh, it's a theatrical show. So you're, you're sitting down in a theater. You're watching these two Brits on stage drink tea. 
And what starts off as a very formal conversation, uh, sort of formal philosophizing about Christmas and the meaning of Christmas, we start to toy with the separation between audience and performers, and we end up bringing the audience involved into the show. So performers or audience members play key characters in the show. We have costumes that get them set up. And this is all to cultivate this sort of fantastic space where the audience and James and Jamesy are all in this sort of make-belief arena together where we all get to play. I think James and Jamesy or Aaron and I treat the show like kids playing with a toy. That we know the toy, we know how it goes, we know how that we know what we can do with it. And let's say a board game has a start, middle, and end to it. We know that structure. But every time we step on stage is an opportunity to to tease out the delight, the the opportunities, so that it's it's actually really happening for us. It's, it's a real sense of play. I was just gonna add to that that uh you know, playing our characters and the scenarios like a child plays with a toy. Um, our goal as performers is is to find genuine play in the show because that's the most likely to help the audience find that spirit of play within themselves as we go through the show. So it is it is interesting because the way that you describe it, it's it's one of those like there's there's audience participation and some people get really frightened of the idea of audience participation, but it's really incumbent on the performer to to make people want to participate. Um, how do you engender people's desire to participate in the show, Aaron? I would say that I describe the show more as audience immersive or an immersive theatrical experience than an audience participatory experience uh, in part because of so many of the associations that i and others have with audience participation it's not like we ask an audience member to do something it's like tea fills up jamesy's flat and it bursts through the fourth wall and we're burst off the stage into the audience and then we contextualize ourselves as if we were underwater and people have the opportunity to see underwater with us. So that's really low stakes. It's not like saying you have to do something. It's if someone chooses to not participate, that's because there's um, very little expectation put on the individual in that context. People feel a little more uh, inspired to dabble in participating. It's, it's like if I walk in a room and I say, hey, um, the other person might say, hey, and that feels low stakes. Likewise, when I start the show, I, I, I walk through the audience and I say, hey, how's it going? And they can choose to participate or not. They don't think of it as participation. They think of it as interacting. Uh, and through the show, the scenarios grow in their proportions uh, to the extent that someone in the audience has an opportunity to play the character God or the queen, you know? And that, you know, if you start there, it would flop. But when people find themselves wanting to join us and to help the show along, they find a new version of themselves to come out and play. And the, and the rest of the audience gets to enjoy that with them. We're all in the same team. We all want 
to have this work and be fun. Uh, and I find the audiences are wonderfully supportive of that and encouraging of each other. I want to just add, I think something that helps the James and Jamesy audience relationship is that the character I played, Jamesy, exists on stage, exists committed to the theatrical premise that the stage is his living room and there's nothing beyond it. So as Aaron comes into the audience, comes into the theater and says, hey, to the audience, I have no understanding that there's any audience there. And just even me seeing the audience, my resistance to seeing the audience, my resistance to going into the audience, to interacting with them at all, is inverse of the audience's resistance to join in the play of the show. And Aaron's this interlocutor, this James is this interlocutor that kind of can straddle both worlds. He starts in the audience, walks comfortably onto the stage, and tells the audience, hey, I'm talking to the audience. And I'm going, who are you talking to? Because if he was talking to me, well, I'd be standing there. And it kind of blows, my, blows James's mind that there's anyone out there. And that, that parallel discomfort and the, the release of our own whole held sense of reality and what we are supposed to be in a moment is slowly loosened as we get to enjoy. I get to, Jamesy gets to enjoy being with the audience and the audience gets to enjoy feeling like they are part of the play. Hmm. That's great. Now I want to go back. I want to go back. Uh, uh, before Aaron joined us, Alistair was mentioning uh, back in uh, 2012, um, I was in Edmonton doing a show called The Last Man on Earth. And Alistair and I think Aaron, you guys were doing your first show together, which wasn't a James and Jamesy show. So what what was <laughs> that show and how did you get from there to James and Jamesy? First, I just want to say Last Man on Earth, what a great show. It was uh, the, the last show I think we saw at the Edmonton Fringe. That was a, the, the feather on the cap before we headed home. Thank you. And the style of physical comedy that physical theater that you and your company uh, exhibited it was was an inspire inspiration for us uh the show we did in edmonton that year was called superhero boy band so three superheroes in a boy band uh <laughs> it was aaron and i and one other person Ilando sparks as he goes by now and uh that was our first foray into Fringe and taking theater, taking a theater production to a city where nobody knew of us. We, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll add to that that uh, it was our the first show that we had created together. It was the first show I had ever created, and um, so I didn't know how it all worked. I didn't know how to get people to the show. I didn't know what size venue we should be in. I didn't know promotion. And so we would run around the festival in our superhero costumes and tell people about the show and try to get them to come. Uh, and it was a, an, an exhilarating experience that I wanted to do again and again because um, we had so much fun in the show with the audience. Likewise, we, you know, there were opportunities for the audience to like, my character was uh, needed to be brought back to life and the audience had a key role in helping give me that that 
the the force or the the energy needed to to do that and the the extent to which they wanted my character back was proportional to the extent that they participated and so we got so much energy from the audience it was really invigorating and so i think when alistair and i later uh, worked with some physical comedians in vancouver and happened upon these james and jamesy characters it was really just through uh, an improv game that we were playing um and then the people we were playing with said oh they want to see these characters play let's do that again that was really nice and we knew we wanted to have audience involvement uh because there's this energy of excitement uh, that we find when when that space is created and audience step into a, a role as a, as a group or as individuals however that is um and i would say that in the first show we did as James and James, it was really a skit in a cabaret. Alistair and I had never had that kind of audience response. The, the energy that we got from the audience was so, uh, it, it, I just knew I wanted to do it again. I wanted to, how, how can we do this? And our director or uh, the, the person with whom we studied clown uh, a year or two earlier, uh, he said, watching the dynamic of our, our chemistry with each other and the audience that he he saw how magical it was and said you know you guys if you you could take this you've got you've got gold and you can mine it if you want and uh with his encouragement we turned that uh 10 minute skit or eight minute skit into a full show that we toured into another show that we toured and uh, we continue getting this, this amazing audience response from the chemistry of these two characters. At the Edmonton Fringe, uh, Aaron mentioned us running around in superhero costumes, which is what we did. We did it, and we did it, yes, to promote the show, but also because I think we love bringing the thea theatrical world, the theatrical way of living life, it out and off the stage into the world. So it was very natural for us to be in superhero costumes in the audience. When we started doing James and Jamesy, we would promote in character, in part because it was really fun. Because you'd have these real interactions with people. Sure, they might be in a lineup at a fringe festival or, uh, but so they'd be welcome to hearing us. But the whole thing was about eliciting play. It wasn't about convincing people to come to our show, it was about having fun with people with us dressed as superheroes. And so now, in it, as we put on a show, as we put on Oh Christmas Tea, we're not running around flyering. Uh, but that same energy of, we get to be in the same performative space together. It's interesting. Um, when, I, when we were doing the, the Last Man on Earth and we started in Edmund, sorry, in Montreal, there was a, a group from Japan called Osara Soup. And they were out every day in their like complete makeup and they did like this amazing physical comedy stuff, um, physical clowning and that sort of thing. But they were out all day in their makeup, um, um, just promoting the show going around very similar because it, it like brings people, people see it and it's, it's quite striking to see it. Um, just like seeing somebody in a superhero suit is, I mean, the costume stuff is really, uh, in some ways, uh, a more effective way on the fringe circuit of getting some attention than just being another guy trying to fly or a line. It sort of draws people in. Um, and you guys stumbled on that by accident, but 
Um, and that's something you've carried on with James and Jamesy. Do you does that actually make it easier to 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 talk to people being in the character? If I'm in the mood to play. <laughs> if you're in the mood to play? Yeah, because I think it's it's less about forcing myself to talk to someone, but being in care being in a costume is sometimes it's like an extended offering of interaction. So so there's more permission granted. There's permission for people to respond. There's permission for people to respond in a way that's not necessarily, hey, I'm Bruce. Uh, nice to meet you. Uh, see any good shows? It's like <laughs> you have conversations that stretch people into an unfamiliar world, which, which we only go to if, if they're delighted by. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, am I right that you guys, you don't live in the same city or even province and we used to live in the same house oh but now <laughs> i mean now do you like i'm just trying to get gauge um whether or not you're like in the same place just like because i know back in the day peter and chris lived at one point peter lived in toronto and chris lived in or the other way around uh, chris lived in toronto peter lived in vancouver but they still somehow managed to create shows together i'm wondering if you guys just just curiosity wise if you're finding something like that well uh this past year was the first year we lived in different cities and created a show together um we've lived in different cities for about five or six years now though yeah but we haven't uh created a new show since 2016 yeah new new is uh brand new but every year we every year we treat our show as an opportunity to improve it, keeping it fresh for us and also absorbing all the great ideas we had over the year. In creation, I think for this last new show we made, uh, we spent a year in conversation, knowing that we would create a physical comedy show. We spent a, a whole year talking about what is the heart of that show. What is that? What is the essence that we are going to try to structure a theatrical piece around? Because I think it's important for us to create work that has resonance beyond a laugh. So with our, with Oh Christmas Tea, it's really about cultivating that sense of imagination in an adult audience. The show is great for all ages, but, but if we didn't, if people didn't leave the show feeling like they had uh, grown in some way uh, beyond just like a belly laugh, I think I, it, it, I don't want to say we would have failed, but <laughs> I think the the potential for people to experience a sense of play that they may have not had as an adult is is both important is a worthy pursuit. And that's what we try to do with old Christmas Tea. Absolutely. Now, creating a show when you're not in the same place, um, how do you, how, what was that process like? Did you talk to other people who've done the same? Did you figure it out for yourselves or, or was it trial and error, uh, Aaron? I would say that each uh, since we started creating together, uh, each show has had 
a unique process based on the circumstances and based on what seems to have worked well the time before. Uh, this time, we had time. Uh, we had over a year to create, and we didn't live in the same city. So we talked about ideas with a co-writer, co-director, uh, David McMurray-Smith, um, who's, who's taken on a role, usually director, uh, for all of our productions. Um, but I would say we ended up doing a residency in Wells, B.C., uh, at the Sunset Theater where we spent a week, about a month before the show opened. And we had a lot of research and ideas for the show. But for me, it's, we seemed light years away from a script, light years away from knowing what the show is. And in that week, uh, actually with uh, a lot of help from Toronto's Adrian Shepard Gowinski, who we had worked with as a sound designer, um, he stepped up and, and co-created the show with us. Uh, we were so productive that week because, I mean, you know, we coming out of COVID, uh, you know, we, we'd been in our own worlds doing various things. And then to have this week of just creation in a theater together, um, it was, it was very energizing and unlike any creation process we've had before and all the research kind of was there available for us. And we came out of that week with a script. Uh, so it's not that some, anyone taught us or you know, held our hand saying, this is the way, uh, because every way has been unique and very customized to our circumstances and interests. Our approach to, to creation is, isn't starting from a script or isn't starting from idea to script to learning that script and then performing it. Uh, it's, it's really about structuring an idea or like finding a heart of an idea and sort of taking it apart to realize what are what are the ingredients of this and is there is is there an order of these ideas that need to take place or are there stages of this idea that need to happen and then what are the theatrical things we can do to flesh out those ideas and then once that structure is there then we can start playing with the comedy we can bring it into our physicality we then start to find out the relationships between each other, James and Jamesy, in that performance and the relationship between us and the audience. Uh, even though we know, having performed a lot, we know some of those things we're gonna be, are going to be there. Like We know we're going to have a relationship with the audience. It's not part of the script. Uh, and it's not... And it, that relationship, at least in the new show, wasn't fundamental to the the core, so it wasn't one of the the core ingredients. Whereas with Oh Christmas Tea, it, it the relationship with audience is a core ingredient. So it's how do we, yeah, how do we, we have those parallel things of Jamesy and the audience resisting seeing each other and then bridging and crossing, and that was the fundamentals of Oh Christmas Tea. I would add that um, in the the show that we recently created. Um, we were very excited about a number of ideas for interacting with the audience that we realized didn't serve the North Star of the show, the, um, the reason for its existence. And so with great <laughs> resistance, uh, 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 we, you know, we pulled these elements out, all these fun things we were excited to put in the show. 
Um, and I would say now in retrospect that the show is much better for it. It's heart and purpose is clear. Yeah. Someone told us never keep a joke because it's funny. So hard uh, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> but they laughed. I yes, know. But it it's derailed, like, it's derailed the momentum. Or... <laughs> now you guys are, this is, you guys have a massive uh, Christmas season uh, coming up. Um, just the number of, of shows you are doing across 43. Canada. Um, this is, have you guys done, I mean, you guys have done fringe before, but this is like, you're doing like one night here, one night there, one night, like, what is the, how do you guys feel about this tour? What, how did it come about to <laughs> tell me, tell me everything? Um, I am very excited, uh, Putting on a tour of this scale is, um, I don't know if, if a lot of your listeners are fringe artists uh, or fringe festival goers, um, but I would say, I would, you know, we're going to 32 different theaters and each theater is its own marketing campaign. Each theater is akin to its own fringe festival for an artist in terms oh, of- Oh, Bob, beyond the- all the administrative work that goes into each theater is multiples of a fringe festival. Mm. So something that you may not know is that we self-produce our tours. So there's no one out there other than Aaron and I who's telling us where to go, what to do, fronting the capital. It's Aaron and I going, okay, every, every year, we try to, well, set goals as a theater company and then try to figure out how we're going to achieve those and what capacity do we have to, to produce these tours. Aaron and I have always self-presented our work outside of festival context, so we've, we're very familiar with renting theaters and marketing the shows. And every year we've been able to grow in size, especially with this Christmas tour from a single city to five to nine to 13 to 20, you know, and now 30, 32 cities. It's massive. The effort is at times like playing whack-a-mole with all, it's like playing whack-a-mole with emails, correspondence, and spinning plates, trying to keep all the elements up in the air. Uh, and it's... We have moments where, fortunately, it's often one of us that's like, I've reached my max, I need help, I need to offload some of my responsibilities. And whether the other person can step in or whether the other person, or whether we agree together, like, okay, we, need, we can let go of that as, a, as a, a dream to hold on to. So let's drop that plate. Let's, let's intentionally let it smash. Great. And let's keep going with what we can handle. And then we bring on other people when we can uh, to, to help out. And we've had working relationships with our technicians and our public publicist and uh, for many years. So those relationships as part of the team, the team is now maybe 10 people hmm. uh, in the creation process from the, oh, more. We've got four people just working on costumes right now. They're delivering the costumes on Monday. Uh, I used to make all the costumes myself. <laughs> I think I started 
our response to this by saying I'm very excited. And I think all of what uh, I and Alistair just said, it gives you a glimpse into the administrative mountain that goes into producing a tour of this scale. And so I'm so excited for the tour itself because I love performing and that's why I'm doing this. And we finally get to perform and be in those theaters with three, four, five, six, seven hundred people playing this game called Oh Christmas Team. And I love performing with Alistair so much. That's why we still do it. I mean, yeah. last year was an interesting year for us because we had all the administrative work and then we were set to perform. And fortunately with COVID, we were able to perform. But in the lead up to that, neither one of us had stepped step onto the stage in a couple of years. Like I think a lot of artists were in that existential conundrum of is my art, am I an artist? Do yeah. I perform? Do I enjoy performing? I haven't been on stage in years. Is that who I am? I am? Am I that still? Do I? Do I do that? Because it's an option. You know, we have the option to to step on stage. Uh, and we create those options by renting theaters. <laughs> There's, I mean, a lot of times artists find themselves uh, producing, especially in Fringe. That's usually often an artist's first experience with producing something is producing something that they created at a Fringe festival. But then, of course, it gets exponentially uh, uh, harder and bigger because Fringe Festival is like training, like producing with 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 training wheels on. So oh, yeah. um, you guys, have you learned like through trial and error about producing or did you have advice? What's what's that look like for you guys? I would say we're. Constantly looking for the best idea like that you know what will help put butts in seats and i think fringe on its own has been a wonderful vehicle for teaching us because if you do seven festivals in a summer say each festival is an opportunity to practice your pitch practice your show description practice uh, improving your graphics and seeing graphics and show descriptions and shows of hundreds of other shows. And so it's really, uh, it's like a boot camp for learning how to market your show, learning how to make your show itself more robust. So it might get reviewed better so that the audience enjoyment will improve and, and all of that will help you make a living at it if you want to. And it extends outside of those festival contexts too, because, you know, you're out of a festival, you're in, you're in the big wide world where, you know, if you need to place yourselves in the company of who you want to be your peers. So, uh, and you need to, or I, we have chosen to turn our days from, from fringe festival inspiration to touring theater company inspirations. So who is touring theater? Uh, in the venues that we're interested in on the scale that we're interested in and how do they do it uh and a lot of that you can sort of sleuth online but i i think our boldness of calling cold calling theater people in the industry and saying hey we also tour or hey we also want to tour could 
could we have a conversation? Could I, could we go for lunch together? Could we, uh, just chat shop? I'd love to, love to, love to pick your brain. I, I want to mention too that Aaron and I, in terms of the creation of live theater and creation and touring of it, you know, we both come from a pretty privileged place where we were able to not work and dedicate our time to, to theater for, you know, that initial show we, we lost money on and we were sell what we celebrated because we each lost five bucks. That superhero boy band show. The very, not the fringe before the fringe, we had self produced it, but we're like, sweet, we just spent three months of our lives doing this thing and we each lost only five bucks. What a great way to spend three months. And clearly not everyone has that luxury. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it was many years as we are, many years of touring fringe and just creating, producing theater where, where we're able to grow the skill set. Such that now we're able to make a living doing it. Aaron, um, the first year that Oster and I worked together in theater, I was a year of transition for me from uh, working in visual effects for film to pursuing clowning. Uh, and uh, the opportunity I had on a community theater show, it was um, with lots of rehearsals and lots of performances, I quit my job not knowing how I was going to make it work. And uh, I said yes to every opportunity to perform that year. It was, neither of us actually went to theater school per se. Um, we studied clown and uh, various physical comedy opportunities post-university. Uh, um, and my first year after having like a desk job uh, in performance, I made... I made $4,000 that year uh, living in Vancouver, which can be challenging. Um, and, uh, and every year has, has been better as I get more experience and as we uh, learn how to run a theater company uh, to the extent that um, for maybe the last 10 years, Alistair, it's been our, our full-time year-round job which has allowed us to gain so much more experience. Yeah. So the chemistry is often uh, in the audience, there were, there were responses about the chemistry, you know? And I think like the chemistry extends from the stage. I think the a key thing that has kept us together is Aaron and I actually really are friends. <laughs> actually <laughs> really do like spending time with each other. Uh, whether that's in the administrative space or dreaming up plans or just involved in each other's lives. So I think, I think that friendship is, is really key to what's allowed us to keep doing this because it's still really fun. I mean, one of the, the, the challenges to performing over a long period of time and even like traveling and touring. Um, you always hear about bands breaking up because, you know, they've they've spent too much time together. Um, how do you keep from, you know, that fight that's going to break up the band sort of thing? How do you communicate with each other to 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 make sure that you guys are still enjoying what you're doing and still and still friends at the end of a seven month tour, for example? 
I would say for myself that I'm the more uh, emotionally unstable of the two of us. Uh, and uh, I'm learning how to better sustain myself. Um, something interesting happened in our last tour, which was our most ambitious tour to date, which is that because of COVID, we weren't going to the bar after the show, hanging out with audience members and friends. So we weren't drinking, we weren't staying up. Um, and I, I've learned that for myself, uh, that even a little bit of alcohol causes some kind of inflammation in my body and makes me more irritable. And if I don't do that, I am a nicer person to interact with. Uh, and I think that we both got to experience that uh, reduction in irritability and when you're doing a show every day, going to a new city every day, um, it can really take its toll on your brain, on your emotional well-being. Um, and we had, I think, the most uh, sustainable tour uh, last year. And it, partly because of my maturation with like my body, self-awareness, well-being. Um, and I think since the beginning, we've been fairly decent communicators. Yeah, I just want to say that the last tour was the first time we had, I experienced touring with the luxury of two technicians. So, uh, and very capable, experienced ones. The onus on us, the, the onus wasn't on us to arrive at the theater super early, unload the van, do, do this tech setup, deal with the uncertainties with each venue felt quite swish to be able to come, show up before the show do our sound check check the props and then and then do the show uh and i think yeah, that that is another part of self-care is and same with like hiring other people to help do do tasks it's um knowing when to ask for help and and that help can come in different forms or to scale back your ambitions like there was numerous years where we had planned to create a new show and I, I told Aaron, we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't make a new show. We're going to be stretched too thin. Uh, so we should pull out one of our old shows. We should rework it, make it better. And I think from a financial standpoint, that's a better decision to make and we'll be have more balanced lives. Um, Aaron has something to say, but I, I quickly wanted to to jump on on that as a as a as a question because um, one of the the things I, I hear fringe artists worry about taking the same show to the same city too many times. Um, do you find that that you're able to take a show because you're reworking it a bit that you can take it to a, a city that you've been to with it and and the audiences are still there for it? I would say it depends on the city. Um, some cities have a very large audience base. I don't remember if it was Winnipeg or, or Edmonton um, in the last few years. I remember something like that there was 80,000 or 100,000 people, like unique individuals attending the festival. I, I'm making that number up, but it wouldn't surprise me if it were true. I think it was um, like 100,000 tickets sold in Winnipeg. Oh, I thought it was way more tickets sold. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and so only a very small fraction of those people have seen our show. So I think there's 
still a possibility for reaching the other people and you know presenting them with what you're offering and and them choosing to do it and there's also something i'm learning with this christmas tour that we're doing uh is when you invest in a marketing opportunity um that can help you in the future beyond just the upcoming run because there's a familiarity it's like if this show keeps coming back I keep seeing that thing. Maybe there is something to it. What am I, you know, like how long did I hear about Harry Potter books before I decided I wasn't going to read it? <laughs> I, sorry, I, I never read it, but I kept wondering, like, maybe I should. People keep loving this book. Yeah. We, I, during Friends in, let's say in Winnipeg, for example, we were staying at my parents' house and my dad loved French. He loves French. He goes to maybe three shows a year. And how, like, there are many shows that he would enjoy seeing, but how he chooses shows is not like, oh, I. It, it's not a process of I'm not seeing that, I'm not seeing that. And just because he didn't see your show doesn't mean he decided he wasn't going to see it. It's just because he saw three shows that year. And it, you know, he was going to go out on Thursday night because his buddy was available Thursday night. And, oh, they're going to go for beers and they're going to go see the show. They're going to find something to go to after the beer. They do that. You know, and we'd have other friends billeting with us and he wouldn't see their shows, not because he didn't want to, but because it didn't fit in with his schedule or like, you know, it just didn't flow with his day. And I think that's how a lot of, and now I have kids or we, Aaron and I both have kids and it's like, I might see a show sometimes, but whether or not I see a show is just because I didn't see a show isn't because I decided there's no way I'm going to go see that show. It's just like most shows I have an interest in seeing and most shows I don't go to. And I would add that um, the smaller the festival, uh, the smaller the audience base that is expected to attend a, a festival in a certain year, uh, the harder it is to come back with the same show because they there's a smaller pool of hardcore fringers who, you know, or not that that's your, your entire audience oh, yeah. but there's just a smaller pool of people and so maybe most of them have seen your show i, I think a question is to sort of why would you bring back a show or why do you even tour a show to begin with the question the question of why what are your goals is so key and and whether you're doing a new show or an old show you know those are quite different experiences at a festival you know if i want to go to a festival if i have my kids there or uh like the energy expenditure for doing a show we already have in the bag we already have all the promo material for we are doing an old show means that i'm free to be with my kids or free to go out at night and not stress about reworking or like uh you know i'm not itching for that one review because the show already has a bunch of reviews um so if nobody came to see your show the first time and you're not making any changes, but you want to perform the show because you want to perform the show because you want to get on stage and you don't want to have to have the stress of writing a new show, by all means, put on your old show. Have a ball if that's your goal. If nobody came the first year and you want to make some money and you want to have bums in seats, you might ask yourself, well, if I just do it the exact same way, what's going to be any different? Uh, 
And then I would say maybe don't do the show yeah. unless you're doing something different. Unless, again, you just want to get on stage. Then yeah. it doesn't matter. Now, James and Jamesy are based in British humor. Um, and the both of you uh, 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 really have a love of British humor. Uh, where did that come from for you? And was it Monty Python? Uh, I... When I was a kid, uh, my dad had Monty Python on the TV. I'd never seen it before. I had no idea what it was. Basically, this guy walks out on stage and start and like uh, wearing a tuxedo with tails and starts playing the piano, and then his clothes fly up to the so to the ceiling. That's on uh, clothes on string. It's from you know an episode of the uh, Flying Circus, and. Uh, and I was like, what? I'd never seen, like, I was a kid. I'd never seen nudity on television. And this is so <laughs> absurd. I'm like, who would create this? This is on TV. Uh, so from that moment, I had this kind of enthusiasm and delight in this group. And it was my dad's enthusiasm that, that put it on the TV. Uh, so for me, Monty Python is uh, a, an origin for me, uh, for the affinity for British humor. I'd say for me, it was Rowan Atkinson. I lived in West Africa as a kid and I'd take eight hour, eight hour flights from Toronto to either Amsterdam or to London. Uh, and, and it'd be back in the day where there'd be one screen that everyone would watch and, and they'd play shows that were applicable to all call or any language. Uh, and they often played Mr. Bean, which was hilarious in my younger years and i just did a rowan atkinson marathon uh, a little while ago watching all the mr beans just appreciating all the the detail and the physicality uh and so so rowan rowan um performance as as mr bean but then also as i got to know more of his work and his stage watching some of his stage performances uh, i got to really appreciate the the physical humor that he, he embodies i think the another thing of the british that we love in both of those shows is there's a sense of propriety like there's you know propriety and absurd so someone playing a, a piano in a tuxedo very proper boom all of his clothes go off and the reaction is to try to stay pr as proper as possible so no matter what happens we're staying as proper as possible same with rowan atkinson you know he's trying to get on the bus or he's trying to get on the bus and is, you know, whatever gets, or he's in the swimming pool, his pants fall off. Well, he's still trying to, to have the image that everything is okay. Don't mind me. He, he's trying to not make a big deal out of all these crazy situations. And that those two things coming together, which is, I'm going to bring it back to the, the theater. It's like bringing back these crazy sort of imaginative worlds that James and James live in. While Trill trying to hold on to the, it's okay, we're just here in the theater. We're just doing a theater show. Nothing's going wrong. And it, meanwhile, the world is flooding with tea and ships are crashing and whatever else is happening in the imaginative world. You mentioned the, the proprietor, the propriety and the absurdity. And I'm, uh, I'm thinking about, uh, I grew up listening to, uh, the, the cast of Beyond the Fringe, uh, Dudley Moore and that gang. Um, as well as the goon show. 
similar things, which are all like about the pri- propriety and also the absurdity. And there's something about that very British, like the absurd, but so extreme, but also trying to keep that stiff upper lip. It's it's very particular to the British humor. And I understand why some people are like, I just don't get British humor. And I think I always my response to that is always, well, you don't have to get it. It doesn't necessarily mean a lot. Does it? I mean, it's just kind of like watching somebody desperately try to keep like their their position in society while everything is falling down in front of them. Yeah, keep calm and carry on mentality. That's right. That's right. Alistair, you mentioned that that in this show there might be something about Jamesy sort of becoming aware of the audience. If that happens to Jamesy, is that something that changes his perception for the future or just for right now? Uh, From that point going forward in the show, for sure. Uh, So, so (laughs) my world is blown open. Absolutely. And, and it's, I need to let go of what I, what I believe to be reality in order to, have real relationships. I think that's a challenge that people face all the time. It's like when things change in people's reality, can you change with it? Can you accept these new things in life? Or are you be in a psychological whirlpool? Mm. And I think those things happen all the time, whether it's traumatic things like a death in a family, you have to, you have to, go through a physical transformation, physical metamorphosis of like accepting the change before you can carry on uh, and then carry on and live in the new reality. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, did you have something to add? Yeah. Kind of two things. I, I didn't know if where you were going with this was uh, like what happens in the next show. Can James eat? I'm curious. I'm curious yeah. if, like, is there continuity between <laughs> shows that, that well, so that Jamesy's world would continue to be shattered in that way? Uh, I would say there there isn't a chronology to the shows. After the first show, oh. we actually thought, "Ooh, we're going to create the next show, the next thing that happens in the chronology of James and Jamesy." And I, I well. Uh, the, our first show that we created as James and Jamesy was two for tea. And at the end, Jamesy's dead. So <laughs> it was, how do we start there? Well, he was in heaven waiting for me. <laughs> and we created a show where we weren't on stage at the same time because we we're in different worlds. Uh, and that didn't, we didn't find how to make that play. So mm-hmm. we started again from the drawing board with a different, uh, core to the show and then we decided i guess in our own minds this show happens before two for tea because yeah <laughs> and then we created another show that happened before james and jamesy were human so it's it's not like we created it thinking okay this is the chronology of right. lives of these people no. we create a show and maybe looking for patterns as humans we're like oh logically this goes before oh yeah i hadn't thought of that before but Will would take the best idea on the table and not feel like we need to justify it because of things that have happened in a previous show. So it's kind of like a, a, a sitcom from the 1970s where all the characters start 
from the same part point every episode? Um, no, no. Uh, well, okay. Of the, of the tea parties, sure. <laughs> but we have we have our show in the dark, which takes place in the dark, which is about two con the, like the forming of consciousness and the forming of relationship. And so that is very much not two British guys having tea. That said, they happen to have British accents. Uh, and they are still James and Jamesy. And in the most recent show we created, uh, James and Jamesy, currently called Right This Way, it's James and Jamesy putting on their first clown show as clowns. So, the and I'd say with each show we build, we understand the relationship of James and Jamesy that much more. Uh, you know, you can say that's, oh, that's just performance experience. But I think it's also experience with these characters and the way they relate to each other. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Now, one of the things that I noticed is that, that is, um, you guys, uh, uh, Aaron, you mentioned that you, you, you didn't go to theater school and that you were in special effects before, but neither of you start set out to be performers. So what were you doing and how did you end up performing? I'll start. Um, I went from high school to doing a degree in biology. And uh, I think with that is I thought, oh, I'm more likely to find financial stability if I pursue sciences rather than arts. So it was more like a process of, of uh, I'm good at this. I'm kind of interested in this. I'll just go this direction. And I found myself working in a laboratory behind a microscope, like working in immunology and thinking, oh, I don't want to spend the rest of my life behind a microscope. There's no future in immunology. No. <laughs> Thanks, COVID. <laughs> no. My... <laughs> oh, man, I could Man, you um, should have, you could have saved us. I, I wasn't happy. And I, I think I had spent so much of my youth um, worried about what I should do. Uh, and eventually I, uh, I took a teaching degree cause I like interacting with people and I was a high school teacher and I ended up feeling like, ah, oh, I can't, I'm not going to be satisfied as a teacher. I can't teach these kids, uh, enough. It's like, I, I felt like I was going to fail, um, cause I didn't do it wonderfully. Um, and I ended up pivoting and pursuing something that had been a hobby, which is visual effects for film. Um, and I enjoyed that. But then four years in, sitting behind a computer, I was like, oh, my body needs to move. I need to interact with people. So again, I found it's kind of like sitting behind a computer is like sitting behind a microscope. It's like, um, but I think I had a tendency to depression because I wasn't pursuing things I was passionate about. I was pursuing the best option I saw available to me from a pragmatic perspective. Uh, and so when I happened upon clowning, just, it was kind of, uh, just very fortunate. Um, I, I did it and I loved it and it was therapeutic and I, uh, my kind of emotional life had so much more life and depth in it, uh, that I just started saying yes to all those opportunities. And 10 years later, this is the longest career I've ever had. <laughs> 10 years later, uh, I'm still loving it. Alistair? 
Uh, so, uh, yeah, theater. I I liked theater as a kid. I was not good at theater as a kid. I can say that confidently. Uh, I didn't. I thought theater was. You had to pretend to be somebody else in order to be a good performer. And uh, I, I was terrified of improv. I did not join any of my high school improv teams, even though there was many of them and they seemed very fun because I thought I won't have good ideas in the moment. I, w- I can learn a script and say a script and I can sing. I sang in choirs as a kid. Uh, so I was in the school plays, but I wasn't in the improv scene at all. Uh, and then I left that. I thought, okay, that was fun. I'll go to university. And I studied a business. I took a business degree. Uh, and someone enjoyed that. I really enjoy business and enjoy thinking of problem solving and goal accomplishing. So set on goals and accomplishing them and, and how to structure people and tasks, uh, the logistical side of things to, to make your ideas happen and monetizing fun things. So I've had run a couple of little businesses. I ran some businesses growing up that put me through university. And then, uh, after university or during university, I started doing community theater and sort of random performances. A friend of mine was taking a Russian history class and for his essay while he's reciting doing his uh while he's doing his talk on the some sort of plague he had six or seven of us all dressed in old and style clothes burst in through the door at various points in time and dramatically die of cholera uh and and i thought that was just the craziest thing to be you know taking a russian history class and then have your pals just burst in during your show so I was one of those people that d- died. And in those environments, it wasn't about acting. It was about playing. It was about having fun. Uh, so, and I got involved in more of their sort of more of their antics doing community theater sh- shows and where it wasn't about being perfect in any sense. It was about having a great time on stage during the rehearsal process, after the show process. Uh, and that's where superhero, yeah. So I went straight from business school into clown school and uh, into superhero boy band. And the rest is history. <laughs> and the rest is history. I just want to make sure that everybody knows they can see the all of the all thirty two dates for O Christmas Tea, <laughs> um, and get tickets at ochristmastea.com. Guys, I hope I can't wait to see the show. Uh, I, I hope you have a blast, and uh, thanks for your time this evening. Yeah, great. Thank great. you so much, Phil. That was really fun. Yeah, all the shows are in all through Ontario, except for our show in Winnipeg. So if you live anywhere in Ontario, we're probably coming to you. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. 
If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.